Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. Roger Hoover with you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've got Alabama's opponent this week, Florida Gators, represented with Kyle Crooks in Gainesville. And then joining us as well as the television voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, Pete Pranica. And Pete, it is great to see you. We know this is a busy time for you coming up as a sports fan before the NBA season gets going. How's everything going? Well, let's see. I just got off the golf course, uh, but this weekend's going to be a. Uh, well, last weekend actually, I was at Notre Dame uh, for the Notre Dame Toledo game, which was far more exciting than a Notre Dame alum as myself would have liked. But it was still fun to be in the stadium. Uh, then this weekend, I've got what I'm calling the ultimate Wisconsin sports weekend coming up. Sunday afternoon, it's Brewers and Cubs at American Family Field. Then on Monday night at Lambeau Field, Packers and Lions on Monday Night Football. Then on Tuesday, I was able to, through the lottery, uh, get tickets to the first practice day at the Ryder Cup in Whistling Straits. So uh, as soon as I sign off here, I'm going to be packing up and uh, getting ready to make the flight tomorrow. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of busy, not for actually calling anything, but just watching, and uh, that can be fun too. So, Pete, is that normal in the offseason for you? Is, is you because you have to be at the games in an official professional capacity most of the time that you utilize this time to have a little bit of a different vantage point, be a fan at some of these events? If the opportunity presents itself, this was one that uh, my cousin and I had been to the PGA when it was at Whistling Straits a few years ago. And so I applied for tickets to the Ryder Cup, which should have been played in 2020. But it wasn't. Then all of a sudden, it just fell into place uh, that the Packers are going to be playing at home. Uh, I have a contact. I, I, my dad and I used to have season tickets until uh, I moved to Portland and then uh, to work for the Trailblazers. And I realized I really couldn't get back for games. And so I let those tickets go. But I still have a contact for tickets. And Brian Anderson, the wonderful play-by-play announcer for the Milwaukee Brewers, has always been very gracious enough to host Anytime I come into Milwaukee, this will already be my second Brewers game this summer. That's a new record. Um, so, yeah, so the, when the opportunity presents itself, you, you do want to be able to enjoy other things. I mean, I've, I've you know, made a trip to Oregon wine country because I enjoy fine wine. So you just try to do all the things in the off season that you can't do during the regular season, which uh, your, your personal life pretty much gets put on hold. And I'm interested, and this question just kind of popped into my head, but when you watch games in the offseason, whether it's a baseball game or a football game, even a basketball game, do you think of it through the lens of a broadcaster? Are you taking mental notes to yourself saying, this is what this person did, this is what I like from this, and, and take mental notes when you're watching a game? It's, it's almost like being a prisoner of your own mind, because if you love the craft so much, you're always thinking about it. Is that kind of how you view games? Sure. Anytime you're sitting in the stands, you're always thinking, you know, if I were calling this game, what would I be focusing on? Uh, if you're in the stands, if you're watching it on television, uh, you're mentally critiquing or evaluating the announcers and how they present it. And you think about how you might present it uh, if, if you had the opportunity to do so. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, you always do look at it through that lens. Um which is which can be kind of fun. But then every once in a while you say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn that off. I'm just going to have a nice cold beer and a hot dog. That's always good as well. And uh, going back to the beginning of your journey in broadcasting, I imagine it started with a love of sports. When did broadcasting kind of get on your radar in your life? Well, it got onto my radar when I was a little kid because I grew up in northern Wisconsin. And so you had the Packers, obviously, the Badgers, the Bucks, the Brewers. And I lived two hours north of Milwaukee. And in those days, and, you know, I'm one of those old guys, I, you know, 
grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, games weren't on TV. And so you listen to the radio and it really did capture your imagination that Jim Irwin and Eddie Doucette, these were the voices that you grew up listening to. And there was a certain magic to it because they were describing something that was, you know, two hours away, or if the bucks were on the road, you know, who knows how many miles away. And I realized that I was never going to be athletically gifted enough, certainly not big enough to, uh, you know, really make a mark in athletics. So if I wanted to be involved in it, commentary was going to be the only way to do it. And I was very fortunate that the high school that I attended, which is Green Bay pre uh, a, a Catholic-only boys' school at the time, it's now co-educational and it's changed its name, but it had a 10-watt radio station. In those days, the FCC would license a 10-watt radio station. They'd put you on the non-commercial point of the dial. And so I've literally been doing play-by-play since I was a sophomore in high school, which is more years ago than I care to care to disclose. Um, but it's the same high school that produced Kevin Harlan. Kevin Harlan of CBS and Turner is uh, five years older than I am. And so he went through Pre-Montre and um, did basketball and football on this little 10-watt radio station. And then I followed him. And so it prepared us so that when he went to Kansas and then when I went to Notre Dame, that we could enter student radio. We weren't, we weren't total beginners, that we had some reps under our belt. And you got to a point that you realize, hey, it's a lot of fun. And you get some positive feedback from people and realize that it's fun. People seem to think I'm good at it. Okay, this, uh, this is something I'd like to do long term. Starting as a high school student calling play-by-play, any announcers you're trying to emulate? I imagine all of us kind of do a little bit once we get going in this business and find our own voice, but anybody that sticks out to you that you're really trying to sound like in those early games? Well, I, I think I picked up a lot of, from the guys that were doing the games that I listened to the most. So, you know, it was Jim Irwin calling the the Milwaukee Bucks uh, and the Green Bay Packers and Eddie Doucette, the Bucks on television. And I one of the biggest lessons I learned early in my career, Eddie Doucette had a very colorful vocabulary. You know, the, uh, the, the free throw circle was the Cyclops and, you know, the lane was the toaster. And so he had all these really, really colorful phrases that he used. And I remember one time on student radio there in high school, I was, I was trying to use some of those same terms and I played the tape back and I thought, oh my God, this is awful. And it was a good lesson and a lesson that's true for, for all of us in this business. You gotta be yourself. Don't try to emulate anybody else. You can pick up certain things that you like about an announcer, but don't try to imitate them. They may inspire you, but you don't want to become you don't want to become a copycat. And Pete, how long did it take you to get to that point? I still feel like in my stuff, I'm still trying to get to the point where I'm true to me, where I actually sound like me. And I've been doing it for over 10 years now. It's, it doesn't seem like long compared to how many years a lot of people have been doing this, but how long did it take you to finally sound like yourself? What you thought was the representation of you? I think probably it was by the time I had graduated from, from college. And then you, you kind of drop some of the, I don't want to say trying to impersonate anybody, but you just become more comfortable in your own skin. Because I think when we start out in this business, because you are extemporizing for an hour or two hours at a time, you almost use the intonation, the vocabulary of these announcers that you emulate as a little bit of a safety net. 
so that you know that you're going in the right direction because these guys certainly are, are professionals and they've made very good careers for themselves. So if I follow their roadmap, then I'm probably going to be in pretty good shape. And so it becomes a safety net for you. At some point, you become so comfortable with yourself because you've done so many reps that you realize that, yeah, I can I, I can do myself and, and handle it myself. And it, it does take a period of time when you feel secure enough in yourself that you don't have to think about well, you know, what would Vin Scully do here? Or, or what would Joe Buck do here? You just do like, no, I'm just going to be myself because authenticity is what's going to win your listeners over more than anything else. Now let's get to your time at Notre Dame. So you're a student there and, and I read that they didn't really have a structured broadcast, I don't know, school like you would at Syracuse or, or somewhere else. And they, but they did have a student radio station, right? So how, how were you able to kind of launch your career and get some reps there in college? And what was that experience like? Well, you know, I was able to get reps early because I had some experience. And so you would do, uh, you know, as a freshman, you're not going to do football, obviously, but, you know, did some basketball. There was a a weekly talk show uh, and you just tried to find ways that that you could do things. And it's like, well, you know, you're not doing baseball. Well, you know, why don't I go do I'll go do baseball. Uh, I'll do hockey. You know, it's it's not my primary, but I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to do it because it's an opportunity. even though Notre Dame did not, and still to this day really does not have a broadcasting program, the equal or even a fraction of Syracuse or Fordham or Northwestern or some other schools, um, it was the alumni network and the notoriety and, and, and the fame of Notre Dame that really has helped a lot of people get into the business. Uh, Ted Robinson, who used to do the 49ers uh, and who was doing the US Open, Notre Dame guy. Bob Fitzgerald, Golden State Warriors, Notre Dame guy. George Blaha, Detroit Pistons, Notre Dame guy. J.B. Long, uh, Los Angeles Rams, Notre Dame guy. Um, There are a lot of us, and part of it has been because we were able to put out a demo reel that was Notre Dame football or Notre Dame basketball. Um, And it was the Notre Dame connection, ultimately, that got me into the NBA. After I had graduated from Notre Dame, I went to work for a small radio station in northern Wisconsin, where I did everything from school lunch menus to the accident reports to, you know, the farm markets and, and spinning records and then doing high school basketball at night. And after a while, it, it, it just really wore on me. It didn't pay very well. And uh, the University of Notre Dame came to me and they said, well, well, we remember you when you were a student here. You were, you know, active in student media. We would like to see if you would work for the Notre Dame Alumni Association, travel around the country and meet with alumni clubs. And they said, hey, we're going to give you a salary and you get to go to all the football games, home and road. I'm like, oh, okay. I get to travel the country, meet other Notre Dame people uh, and go to all the football games. Like, "Eh, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And long story short, one of the other duties I had was playing in golf outings and they're was an outing in Ann Arbor. And the president of the Notre Dame Club of Ann Arbor said, hey, I'm good friends with George Blaha, who since the early 70s had been the voice of the Detroit Pistons. And he said, I'll introduce you to George. And so I called up George and we chatted for a little bit. And I said, look, I've got a, I've got a reel from Notre Dame. Would you listen to it? I wasn't asking for a job. I said, you know, would you listen to it? And he said, yeah, I'll listen to it. And I wait and I wait and I wait. And a couple of weeks later, he calls me up and he said, you know, your, your play-by-play is as good as most of the guys in the NBA right now. We just need to find you a job. And 
Long story short, um, George did at the time and still does Michigan State football on radio. And the guy who was backing him up was Mark Champion, who at the time was doing the Detroit Lions. So there were times on fall Saturdays and Sundays where one or both of them were not available. And George gave my tape to his boss, a fellow by the name of Harry Hutt, who was in charge of marketing and broadcasting. And Harry hired me that when either Mark or George were unavailable, I was doing Detroit Pistons radio. And this was after they'd won their second championship. So I'm doing Bad Boys Pistons on radio. And my first postgame interview is Dennis Rodman. Uh, you know, so it was the Notre Dame connection uh, more than anything else. I mean, obviously, George felt that I was good enough. And his, his boss, who was not a Notre Dame guy, felt I was good enough. But it was a Notre Dame alumni network that ultimately helped me to get into the NBA in the first place. Yeah, when you get those opportunities with the Pistons, how do you kind of keep your nerves in check, knowing that it's great you get to do an NBA game as a fill-in, but also knowing that this could be a stepping stone towards ultimately the career you end up having as being an established NBA broadcaster? Uh, it was it was pretty wild because the very first game I did, so the Pistons have won their second NBA championship, and this is how long ago this was the Raptors and the Grizzlies were not in the league yet. And, but yet Toronto was trying to get a team and Reebok put on uh, a double header at Sky Dome. My first NBA game that I did for real, not into a tape recorder was in Sky Dome and all the NBA brass were there. I got to meet David Stern the night before the game. And it gets to a point where you, you just like, okay, pinch me. This is, this is crazy. And when I was at Notre Dame, Tony Roberts had been the voice of the fighting Irish on, on mutual. And then on Westwood one, and I called Tony up and, and Tony was uh, always uh, blunt and gruff and to the point. And he said, are the baskets still, still 10 feet high? Is the court still 94 feet long? Like, yeah, Tony, he's like, it's just a game of basketball. Go do it. And you just, you just go and do it. I mean, you've done basketball games before and you just lock in and, and you do it. And you didn't want to put too much pressure on yourself. I mean, you wanted to be as good as you possibly could, but it was the very, very first time. And the memory I have of it when it was over, uh, Doug Lane was the engineer that day. And Doug Lane had engineered the earlier game uh, between Boston and Cleveland, I think it was. And, and, and my game was Detroit and Utah. And uh, I remember wrapping up the, tel the, the broadcast and just kind of taking a deep breath because it was so exhausting. I worked an NBA game by myself, okay, in a baseball stadium. And, it, you know, with two-time defending world champions, it was just, you know, it was one of those pinch me moments. And I would, but I was, struck by how exhausted I was, how much effort I had to put into it. And Doug Lane turns to me and he says, that was your first NBA game? I say, yeah, Doug, it was. He said, damn, you're pretty good. I'm like, thank you. I didn't, you know, I, I appreciate that. You're working with Johnny most. So, you know, you, you, you know, you know, from NBA broadcasting, but it was, uh, that was, that was a crazy experience. But um, how do you set your nerves aside? You know, as long as you have a little bit of nerves that pushes you to be the best you can, if those nerves help you to focus a little bit, 
you don't want to get rid of the nerves. You want to have just a little bit of nerves in you to help you focus. And, and I think it, it allows you to do a better job rather than if you walk in too comfortable and you walk in too much like, uh, uh, okay, I got this. I think that's when you actually trip yourself up. So a pretty thrilling moment for you getting to fill in with the Detroit Pistons. What were the next steps for you? I know Portland was an important part of your journey as well. Right. Well, I referenced Harry Hutt. Harry Hutt had been the vice president of broadcasting and marketing for the Detroit Pistons. And he went on to work for the Portland Trailblazers. And as soon as he went out there, he said, someday, some way, we're going to, we're going to find a job for you. And I had, um, I flew out there. I talked to sales. I talked to PR. I talked to marketing. And we were, he was basically trying to figure out a way to get me in the door. He, he just couldn't make me the radio voice or the TV voice, but he wanted to get me in the mix in some way, shape, or form. And what ended up happening, and this was the first NBA lockout year, 98, 99, he hired me and it was like the job grew daily. It started out that I was going to work as a PR assistant and write the game notes uh, and uh, work on the media guide, work. The team had a magazine. I would write for the magazine. And then a couple of days after I got there, he said, you know what, we're going to do something that nobody else has done. And that is, we're going to have a radio pre-half and post host, and it's going to be you. And oh, by the way, for some home telecasts, you're going to be a sideline reporter. <laughs> so the, the, the job just kind of grew. And, uh, after that first year, uh, Eddie Doucette, who was the incumbent TV voice of the Blazers, the team decided not to renew his contract. And, uh, and then at that point, I, I was brought on and uh, would have been the 99-2000 uh, season to be the TV voice of the Portland Trailblazers. And I read, Pete, that when you were let go by the Trailblazers, it was one of those things where you were blindsided by it. And you, and you said that it was one of the worst days of your life. And at that, we all go through disappointments in our career and you've come out the other side and been a tremendous success. But what was going through your mind when you're going through that point in your career where you wonder to yourself, do I still have a career? Yeah, it was, it was really hard because my contract was up for renewal. My agent had talked with the Blazers and they said, of course, we're going to renew Pete. We love Pete, but you know, it went above his pay grade. And for those who are not familiar the Trailblazers losing the Western Conference Finals, and and then they're losing a hundred million dollars a year. And Paul Allen says, you know, we need to cut salary, and, and rather than cut players' salary, they cut salary of, of employees. And eighty eight people were laid off in a single day, myself included. And at that point, you're just like, okay, how do I make mortgage? Uh, how do I make the rent? What do we do next? Because it happened so late that there were no jobs available. And so I had to go back to Chicago and I went back to a company that I knew that I'd worked for previously as in, in marketing and in writing for a travel company. And they took me back for a year. And so I was out of the league for a year. Um, but, you know, you just, you, you rely on friends and, and uh, Patricia Lowry, who had been the producer for Blazers telecasts had moved on to ESPN. And by way of example, she said, look, I know this is not what you want to be doing, but would you do talent stats for, for some events? So I did talent stats. And one night I did talent stats for Mike Breen. And I asked Mike Breen, I said, uh, I know you're doing the Olympics in Athens. You're going to be doing basketball. Does NBC have everybody they need? And he says, well, I, I don't know, but you need to send your tape to, to Jim Bell. 
Oh, Jim Bell is producing the Olympics. Oh, he's also the producer for Notre Dame football, you know. Um, and then ultimately some broadcasters who were hired backed out because in 2004, the Athens Olympics, we all thought would be a, a terrorist target. And a lot of people said, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go to Athens. NBC called Steve Snapper Jones, who was my partner, and, and he provided a tremendous reference for me. I sent in um, a demo tape that was unusual. And I think this is a, a good point for those of us in the craft to remember. I knew that I had I'd done Seattle Seahawks NFL football in the preseason. I'd done the NBA. If I send that to NBC, that's not going to matter because I'm not going to be doing basketball. And then there, there is no American football in the Olympics. So I had done just in freelancing. I had done some swimming and diving. I had done some indoor soccer. Uh, I had done some volleyball. I put that on my reel, and that's what I sent to NBC because not that I was going to do volleyball, but it just showed that I could do other things. And after I got the call from the producer uh, with NBC, she said, I'm going to ask you the easiest question you've ever been asked. And that is, do you want to go to Athens and do the Olympics for NBC? Of course, she, yes, yes, Molly Solomon. Yes, I do. I do want to do the Olympics. And she said, I have to tell you a funny story about this. She said, we're sitting there and I'm with Dick Ebersol, who obviously in our business is an absolute legend. And she says, we put your tape in. And it rolls and we're watching indoor soccer and volleyball and swimming and diving. And Dick Ebersole turns to me and says, number one, I love his voice. We got to hire this guy. Steve Jones loves him. And anybody who has the balls to send us this type of demo reel, I think we need to hire him. Because I, 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 you know, I tried to tailor it to what the Olympics might be that I might be doing sports that are, are more or less out of the mainstream. And I ended up doing team handball and judo, you know, and, and then in 08 in the Beijing Olympics, I did weightlifting. So, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things. Sometimes when you put a reel together, you have to think about who's looking at it and what they're hiring for. And I read too, that didn't you have to quit your job just to be able to do the three weeks in the Olympics? So you essentially gave up any source of income just for that three weeks. And then you, you had the Grizzlies in the works where you were, so can you tell us that story, how that came about? Your research is very good. It's absolutely true. I was working for a travel company in Chicago. And so I get this offer from NBC. Okay. You get to go to Athens, Athens for the Olympics. I mean, come on, this is amazing. And um, my employer would not give me the time off. And I said, look, I can set it up with the rest of the people in the department. I'm only going to be gone a month. I will take it unpaid. And you can tell your clients, hey, our vice president of marketing is working the Olympics for NBC. And the husband and wife who ran the company said, nope, sorry. So, you know, it put me in a, in a real quandary. Um, my wife at the time was was writing grants for Children's Memorial, so we weren't going to be totally bereft of money, but it would certainly be a, a large financial hit if I take this job with NBC and then I come back and I don't have a gig. At the same time, that same summer, there were three jobs available, television in New Orleans, television in Denver, and radio in Memphis. And... Um, it was one of those 
I think the, the phrase is leap and the net will appear moments. Uh, I was talking to my nephew who was just a teenager at the time. And we said, Jimmy, what do you think we should do? And he's like, well, of course you go to the Olympics. And the response was so honest and so immediate and so forthcoming. I turned to my wife at the time and said, I guess I, guess I should just go. And that was the decision, knowing that I may come back from Athens with, without a job. My agent at the time, or still my agent, uh, gave me the best piece of advice he has ever given me, which is, I know the people in Memphis. What I want you to do, you're going to call the vice president of broadcasting. You've sent him your tape. You are calling him up and saying, you know what? I'm flying to Memphis on my own dime. I want to have lunch with you. And you're going to do this before you go to Athens, because once you go to Athens, out of sight, out of mind, potentially, you don't want to run the risk of losing this job. So I did exactly that. Before I went to Athens, I flew to Memphis. I met with Randy Stevens, who was the head of broadcasting at the time. We, we visited over lunch. Uh, I went back to Athens. And um, one morning at 6 a.m., which was about 10 p.m., I think, in Chicago, uh, my wife at the time called me. She said, uh, Maury Gosfriend, your agent just called me uh, a little you know, earlier today. And the Grizzlies are offering you the radio job. And even that in and of itself is instructive. Trust me, all my stories aren't this long-winded, but this, is, this one's important. Um, before I got to Portland, I had referenced Harry Hutt. And Harry Hutt one night called me when I was in Chicago having dinner. And he said, can you get to Portland by tomorrow night? Okay, why? Well, the Vancouver Grizzlies announcer, Don Poyer, has lost his voice. They're only doing radio tomorrow night. He's lost his voice. The Grizzlies don't have a backup. If you fly out here to Portland, where the Grizzlies are going to play us tomorrow night in the Rose Garden, you can do Vancouver radio. Okay. So I flew on this crazy quilt itinerary on Southwest Airlines from uh, Chicago to Kansas City to Los Angeles, to Oakland, to Portland. And I get there and I, I do the game and Don has lost his voice and I do the game. And uh, years later then, after I had gone and had gotten the Portland job, Don and I would always laugh about that night because he had lost his voice. He insisted on being having his headset on and trying to introduce me every time coming out of break. And he mispronounced my name every single time. But we always had a good laugh about it after I'd taken the Portland TV job. And so after I interviewed in Memphis, they were moving Don from radio to television. Matt Devlin had gone to Charlotte and Randy Stevens had asked him, OK, I'm talking to these guys. Don, it's not your decision per se, but you're going to be working with this guy. You're going to be traveling with this guy. Uh, what, what's your opinion? And Don said, I remember Pete from that night. Uh, in Portland when he filled in for me. And he just seemed like a genuinely nice guy and a good announcer. So Randy, hire whoever you want, but if you want my opinion, I think Pete's your guy. And, and again, that goes to the point that I make to all young people who are interested in getting into this business is that you network and that you be a good person, that you be accountable, that you be friendly, that you be conscientious because that stuff does matter. When somebody, a decision maker says, okay, I need a recommendation. And if there's somebody that uh, can recommend you and can vouch for your hard work, uh, 
your character and, and all those other things that are very, very important, then so much the better. And it may, you may end up getting a job that otherwise you may not get. That's certainly a great story as you make the uh, transition to Memphis. How did you kind of make that uh, your home as time went on? How did you kind of work yourself into the community and with that fan base? Well, I think what you have to do, you know, we're very lucky in Memphis here because this is a, a basketball centric community. It is a community that values hard work. They value passion. Um, and I, I was, I was just myself and, you know, people took to my style and, and you, you can't, you can't fabricate that. You can't make that happen. It, it just, it just does happen. And, and you do get involved in the community. I, I think it's important that when you are the voice of the team, you need to find some way of being invested in the community. And, and for me, a lot of it was St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. But then there are other things that I've gotten involved in. Uh, you know, I'm on the board of Tennessee Shakespeare Company. And you just, you just want to become part of the community so that you're not just the voice on television, but you're somebody who really cares about Memphis and cares about the city becoming a better place to live. Um, but like I said, I didn't try to do anything other than be myself, call games the way that the best way that I know how. And, you know, my style resonated with people, people here in Memphis. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I'm going into year 18 and I'm here until they kick me out. Certainly great to see. And uh, you mentioned as well, starting with radio. Uh, for you, great basketball play-by-play -play on the radio. What does that entail? What's important to you as a basketball on the radio play-by-play -play announcer? And then we'd love to hear your description on television as well. I think with radio, Eddie Doucette, I think, had the best description. He, you want to make the audience hear the beat of the ball. Basketball is like jazz. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast paced. And as an announcer, you have to be able to capture the energy level wherever it is. If it's a fast pace, if it's a slow pace, just by the intonation of your voice, uh, you have to create that sense. Really to me, good basketball play-by-play -play or hockey play-by-play -play because both sports are so, so uh, fastly paced. It, it really should be like music. There should be a, an element of musicality about it, that it's smooth, that it flows, and that you get a, a sense of where guys are going because it's constant motion. There's no dead time. It's not like football where teams go back to the huddle or baseball, you're in between pitches. So whatever you can do to match the cadence of your voice to the pace at which the game is being played, to me, that's huge. Obviously, you know, the fundamentals, um, you know, the court geography, the time, the score, the game situation, all those things are, are vitally important, of course. But for me, the best play-by-play -play is the one that gives you a sense of the energy, the passion, the tempo at which the game is being played. Pete, do you, do you miss radio at all? Do you get envious of some of the radio guys and, and just how you have the opportunity to have that blank slate on radio? Or do you just really enjoy the, the storytelling aspect of TV? I, you know, I, I do miss radio a little bit. Um, you know, I've done some Memphis Redbirds baseball on radio, and, and that, of course, is a totally different animal than the NBA on radio or television. Um, sometimes I, I do miss radio, and there have been a couple times where our radio play-by-play -play guy during the preseason, you know, had some trips that he had to make or some family issues, and I, I filled in for him, and, and, and that was fun. 
unfortunately now in the NBA, all the radio positions are, you know, way high up and it's very hard to see the court. So, so I don't miss, I don't miss that part of it. Um, but you had asked about the transition to TV, you know, t- TV, the, the difference between radio and TV radio as the play by play guy, you, you are everything in television. It's a much more communal effort. And my primary goal is to set things up and to make Brevin Knight look good. Uh, that's really what we're trying to do. And, and you're working with whatever pictures the director puts up. You're working with whatever replays the producer puts up. And so it's a much more collaborative effort. And so you're trying to put captions rather than full-blown descriptions. And I think that's the, the biggest difference between television and radio. And obviously television, you do have, as, as you suggested, time to, to tell some stories because you don't have to call every touch of the ball. And how much input do you have on a, on a nightly basis in terms of graphics? You know, what's the back and forth like with your producer, your director before the game and maybe even in game? Like how much are you utilizing that talk back function to have a, a say of, of what the audience is going to see in here? We utilize it quite a bit. We have a daily production meeting, whether it's over the phone when we're here in Memphis or if we're on the road, we'll, we'll go down to the hotel lobby about 10 or 11 in the morning. And we do go over things. Uh, you know, right now, there are so many data points and so many statistical services and, and so many factoids that, that we can throw in that uh, we want to make sure that we get the best ones out there and make sure that we get the graphics loaded and uh, and there will be some times where I will talk to the producer saying, you know, we're coming out of this break. I want to tell this particular story because we're going to have time. A lot of times Brevin will get on talk back and he'll say, you know, let's go back to that play uh, and clip it off and put it on melt reel because we want to do some special graphical work to it. So um, we're always using talk back. We're, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be as collaborative and collegial as possible to make sure that, that we put the best possible show on the air. And then getting ready for each one of the Grizzlies games that you call, uh, what does your spotting chart look like? I don't know if you have any handy that you could show us, but what's important to you to have going e- into each and every game? Gotcha. Unfortunately, I'm in the midst of moving right now, so my, my charts are, are pretty well packed up. I use a program called Broadcaster's Edge, uh, and it is it is a program that, helps from a time-saving perspective because it uses a database so that the stats are, are automatically refreshed and updated every day. I don't have to go in and handwrite everything in, which is a huge time saver for me. What I do for the NBA is uh, those stats are updated. I don't have to look them up. They're just automatically uh, populated. But what I want, what a player did in his last game, then the second line, and, and this particular chart has, you know, name, height, weight, birth date, stats. But then I've got six lines of information that I can tap in or type in into the database that will live until I, until I delete them. Uh, line number one is what did they do in their last game? Line number two is how many 10-point games, 20-point games, 30-point games, double-doubles. What's their season high for the year? Uh, the third line is trends. I will like to look back at a player individually, and I will look at all of them and say, what have they done in the last five games? What have they done in the last 10 games? Are they shooting well from three? Have they taken a ton of free throws? Are they scoring below their season average? Are they scoring well above their season average? And then the last two, basically, uh, two or three lines will be biographical information. 
you know, who did, did they play with a college teammate that is also now in the NBA? Or did they play for uh, somebody who coached in college and is now coaching in the NBA or awards and honors and, and things like that? Um, so that's basically the information. And then as we get deeper into the season, particularly with our divisional opponents, I'll, I'll look up what a player has done against the Grizzlies uh, so that you have all that all that information put together. Uh, and that, that's what my basic spotting chart looks like. And then what I do is I type up a series of four by six cards working from the individual game notes for the teams uh, about overall team trends uh, and things like that. And then I have uh, a couple of cards that are strictly um, statistical and, and rankings. And if you hang on just one second, I may actually, let me see if I actually have these handy. which actually I, I'm amazed I was able to find these. Um, okay, so I have, I have this set of cards right here. And if you can see it's, you know, points scored, points allowed, three-point shooting, free throw shooting, points in the paint, steals, forced turnovers, and things like that. So that's kind of standard information. Then I have this card that I have our advanced statistics. So offensive rating, defensive rating, net rating. I also like to know, I find it very instructive um, assist percentage, rebound percentage. What percentage of available rebounds does a team get? How many baskets or what percentage of baskets are assisted? Um, how fast do they play? Uh, and then also at the bottom here, I've, I've got what they do, what the bench numbers look like. Uh, and that started because there was one year where the Grizzlies had a really good bench. I also go through and I do uh, a biography on all the referees because you never know when you may, you may need that. Um, I have this lovely pink card with the rules for challenges, coaches challenges in the NBA and replay review. Um, and then I, these are from the playoff series with the jazz. So I've got blue cards for the Grizzlies. I've got green cards for the jazz and they're just, just little one liners. Uh, it could be about a player. It could be about some trend. Um, the, the overriding principle for game prep, and it doesn't matter the sport, is something that I learned from Steve Snapper Jones when I was in Portland. The most important thing that you can do as a broadcaster for your listeners is to identify what the identity or character of a team is. Can you tell me how team A plays? Can you tell me how team B plays? If you can do that and you don't have to quote chapter and verse on numbers. You can say they're one of the best corner three-point shooting teams in the league. You don't have to give the exact percentage. But if you can lay that out there at the top of the telecast and say, well, team A does this, team B does that, and then you track that through the course of the game, you already have a storyline. And you can say, well, team A is playing above their norm or below their norm. Well, why is that? That's what, that, that's what the analyst is for, to explain why that's happening. But it gives you a storyline so that it's important for, when I think of the Grizzlies in the Western Conference, we see Orlando twice a year. Grizzlies fans probably don't watch very much Orlando Magic basketball. I want to make sure that when I walk in there, I can explain to our audience what kind of team the Orlando Magic are, statistically, uh, their style of play, so that, okay, now 
I've set you up with a baseline. This is how Orlando plays. We know how Memphis wants to play. So let's see how those styles mesh and see how this game unfolds. Even if you're not saying Cyclops or Toaster anymore, uh, any basketball phrases you love going back to and any action words that really help you, you feel like on television as well? Uh, well, what I did is I, the one word that I did appropriate from Eddie Doucette is bango, which that was any big shot by Milwaukee Buck was bango, uh, which has now become the name of the mascot in Milwaukee. So, so I do that. Um, a lot of the other stuff, it just, it just comes up organically and I try not to get too, too slangy if, if that's even a word, because that's not, that's not what this uh, audience in Memphis really wants. Uh, they, they, they want meat and potatoes basketball and they want to, they want to know exactly what's going on. And of course, the one phrase that has become very, very popular around here is, is my call at the end of the game, which is once the game is decided, at least I hope it's decided is hammer nail coffin. This baby is over. And I don't have a good origin story. People ask me about it all the time. I don't have an origin story. It just, hit me one day and I put it out there and people seem to like it. And, um, I mean, I went to a restaurant a couple of weeks ago with Brevin. I had two, two, I had two wait staff come up to me and say, say hammer nail coffin. Your dinner is over. You know, it's just, just crazy. You don't, you don't expect anything like that. We've, we've also come up with the whole thing about, uh, the referees. Um, and, and this is another interesting story that illustrates that the impact that we can have as announcers, it's actually more than we probably even imagine it is. Um, when I was in Portland, the public address announcer would say the three officials as assigned by the NBA are, and then read off the three names. And I thought, well, that's kind of a, kind of interesting. So I think I'll, I'll adapt that. And so one night I said, we have three officials. And then Brevin jumps in and says, and they showed up on time. And I looked at him like, what are you doing? Um, but it, it became his, his shtick. Um, that that he had to say they were showing up on time. It's totally made up. It was totally ad-libbed. But here's here's the core of the story. About four or five years ago, there's a young woman who was doing a blog on the Grizzlies. So I would see her all the time at media scrums and all that. And she said to me, she said, you know that thing that you do with the referees? I said, uh-huh. She says, you just think it's it's funny. It's 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 a shtick. Like, yeah, we'd like to think it's funny. She said, it's more than that. My son is autistic. He is uncontrollable when we try to sit him down to watch a basketball game. But when he hears you and Brevin say, we have three officials and they showed up on time, they have been assigned by the NBA, he becomes quiet and he's ready to watch basketball. That just floored me, the, uh, the impact that our words can have on people. And it's, like I said, it's far beyond anything that, that you would, you would even imagine or, or even think about. Now, have you tried to monetize the hammer nail coffin thing, put it on a couple of t-shirts and, and start making some money out of it in a world where everybody's trying to make a dollar here? I think that's a, that's an easy t-shirt to sell. Don't you think? You know, I, I did, I did think about it and I, I was going to promote it and, have the proceeds go to St. Jude, which is one of my favorite charities. But St. Jude did not want to be associated with anything, obviously, with with coffins because their their job is to is to save children's lives. 
Um, and, and so, so no, I, I have not monetized it yet, but I, if, if I do see a bootleg t-shirt out there, like uh, uh, not yet, <laughs> this will, this will be my final one, but I have a, a question about agents and everybody gets to their mm-hmm. point in their career where they think they say to themselves, do I need an agent? Is it worthwhile for me to get an agent? Um, and it all depends on where you are in your career, but when would you think is the right time for somebody to explore an agent? In their career, that's a good question. Um, for some, I, I think if if you can go ahead and land your first quote unquote real job, where you know you're you're getting paid on a regular basis, I think then at that point you might want to reach out and check in with an agent. What John Chelesnick does with STAA is amazing with leads and a lot of background information, kind of acting not really as an agent, but yet showing you where there are opportunities and and working with people to refine their reels. It kind of sort of works as an agent in in some sense. Um, But what you have to do as far as an agent, you have to be comfortable with an agent who is looking out for you, someone who believes in you, uh, and someone who's willing to help you find gigs. Um, some agents just want to negotiate the contract, take their percentage, and you only hear them at contract hear from them at, at contract renewal time. Do you have an agent that really wants to partner with you and, and grow your career? Um, some kids coming out of college, I mean, you can reach out to agents. And look, some agents will want young talent coming out of Syracuse or Fordham or, or, or some of the other programs. And if you've got a really, really good reel and you send them a reel and they think you're really good, maybe an agent will take you on right out of college. But uh, I'm, I'm just thinking that you got to get your first job, find your first job on your own and, and establish yourself, get some reps, get a really good reel together and then start taking a look at, at people who might represent you. And, uh, you know, remember, they're going to be taking uh, they're going to be taking a percentage of your salary. So if you're not making a whole lot of money, then it, then it's then it's an investment for sure. But uh, a good agent will always have your best interests at heart. They'll be looking out for you. Uh, they will help you network. They will put you in positions that otherwise you might not be. They may well bring you opportunities that otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't have available to you. But Having said that, I think for young broadcasters, what uh, STAA does, I think, is is invaluable. And um, also being part of the National Sports Media Association that Dave Gorin runs out of Winston-Salem. I think he has a special student rate for members. And when they have their annual awards weekend in Winston-Salem, they also have a number of classes. And I have run into a number of young broadcasters there and, and have had the opportunity to network there with them as, as they listen to various presentations on game prep or, or working with a, a broadcast partner, things like that. So, uh, you know, with NSMA and STAA, I think those are really, really good resources to help you get that first job, get your foot in the door. And once you establish yourself a little bit by getting a regular paycheck in the business, then I think it's, it's time to look, uh, look for an agent. 
Well, Pete, we'll let you go on this. So you mentioned earlier that Dick Ebersol was impressed by the variety of sports you sent on that demo reel to NBC getting ready for the Olympics in 2004. And even to this day and age, you still call some soccer, you still do some wrestling, you keep yourself uh, very varied in the offseason, it seems like uh, when the Grizzlies are not playing. Just how much do you enjoy that? How much does that help you as a broadcaster kind of flexing those other muscles and uh, learning those other skills and other sports at times? Well, I fell in love with soccer when I was working for the Notre Dame Alumni Association, and I didn't know much about soccer, but they hired me to be the PA announcer for men's and women's soccer. And I I really came to enjoy the sport. And then after I had joined the Grizzlies, uh, what was then Fox Sports Southeast had uh, SEC soccer. And they said, hey, you want to make a little extra money? Do some SEC soccer. Pick that up. And then obviously when the USL came to Memphis. Uh, they reached out to me and I certainly had interest in, in doing some soccer. It's something different. Uh, I enjoy it tremendously. The pro wrestling is something that uh, it, it, it's just a hoot because I grew up as a pro wrestling fan and uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a Memphis championship wrestling promotion here. And uh, the, uh, the, the guy who runs it uh, is one of our in arena hosts for the Grizzlies. And so, you know, we know each other really, really well. And I would always tease him. I said, Dustin, if you ever need anybody to help you with commentary, I'm your guy. And so he's taking me up on it. And it, it's, it's, it's been great fun. I mean, I, I guess I'm the broadcasting equivalent of a gym rat. If you've got something that you want me to call and you're going to keep score. Yeah. I, I'm always interested in the, in being part of the action. Well, Pete, you do a tremendous job and we'll let you go. And uh, just thank you so much for all the insights you've given us this week on Broadcaster Hour. And just enjoy being a fan coming up with all the great games you have coming up this weekend uh, before Grizzlies basketball returns. But thank you again. We've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, doing all the research and asking the great questions. And uh, hopefully I provided some enlightenment. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. All right. Our thanks to Pete Pranica. Thank all of you for watching this edition of Broadcaster Hour.